0: Welcome to another episode of Neuropod a clinical neuroscience podcast. Hello, welcome to another episode of Neuropod Today I'm joined by Dr. Gargi Banerjee, who's a clinical le- lecturer in neurology at University College London. Hello, Gargi. Hello. Hi. Thanks, for, thanks for joining us today. Um, so today we're going to be talking about the topic of cerebral amyloid angiopathy. And I know this is a, a topic that you've got uh, extensive both clinical and research experience with. So thanks for talking um, us through today. To start with, I'd just like to ask a very general question, really, which is what is cerebral amyloid angiopathy? And what do we understand about the pathogenesis of this condition?
1: Yeah, so so when we're talking about cerebral amyloid angiopathy or um, CAA, as, as we like to call it, um, really, it's describing any situation uh, where you're getting amyloid building up uh, in the blood vessels of the brain. Um, and when we're talking about amyloid, what we mean are these um, protein aggregates um, that, uh, that are made up of smaller parts that have this beta sheet structure. Um, and amyloid proteins in general have very uh, distinct physical properties and uh, also can have you know, specific reactions to certain dyes. So, Congo red is the one that we often see in the textbooks, and sometimes thioflavin tea. So, that, that's what an amyloid protein is. Um, amyloid protein can be made up of different building blocks. Um, and so when most of the time when people are talking about amyloid, especially in a kind of neurological context, we're talking about amyloid beta. So uh, that's the building block uh, that we're talking about. Um, and I think that is, it is the most common type of amyloid protein that we see in human disease. Uh, and when we're talking about amyloid beta CAA, we're talking about amyloid beta building up in small and, and medium-sized uh, blood vessels, mainly arteries uh, of the leptomeninges and cortex. Um, so that's what it is.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, in terms of pathogenesis, uh, so there's a, there are a lot of unknowns here. We do know that you see uh, increasing amyloid beta CAA in the context of, of age, um, but we don't know the exact mechanisms of, of why, uh, why it builds up in the blood vessels. I think you, know, you could argue that the prevailing view is that uh, it's the result of a, a failure um, of normal perivascular clearance. So, the idea is you know, amyloid beta builds up as you age, uh, and then you know, normally you're able to clear it to some extent. But at some point, perhaps due to aging, perhaps due to other factors, uh, you're no longer able to do that. Then you get this amyloid beta building up um, within the artery uh, artery walls, particularly the tunica media and adventitia. You start to lose smooth muscle cells. Um, As this progresses, you get this sort of double barrel appearance um, as as the vessel wall essentially pulls apart. You can get fibrinoid degeneration, necrosis, dilatation of certain parts, microaneurysms formation, uh, forming, and all of this all together essentially stops your blood vessel from functioning normally. So you can get ischemia, um, and so that's why we, we think you see things like white matter changes or, um, mm-hmm. on imaging in these patients. But most importantly, we think it affects the, the fundamental structural integrity of the blood vessels, and this leads to bleeding, which is which is sort of the main clinical manifestation of CAA.
0: OK, excellent. And we'll, we'll talk about the, the clinical manifestations um, a bit more in, in detail. Um, before going on to that, though, so listeners might be familiar with beta amyloid uh, being implicated in the pathogenesis of other conditions. I guess Alzheimer's disease being, uh, you know, the most commonly encountered. Um, is there any overlap with CAA and these conditions or is this a distinct clinical entity?
1: And um, so I think this is a, a really important, really interesting question. And um, As you say, it's the same amyloid beta protein that that we see in both diseases. Um, I think I was going to try and answer your question in a single sentence. I would say there's definite pathological overlap, uh, but clinically they might represent two ends of a a spectrum uh, where you've got a clinical presentation with cognitive impairment and Alzheimer's disease at one end uh, and a presentation with brain hemorrhage and CAA at the other. Um, So so to kind of explore that um, in a bit more detail, so we know from pathological studies that there is definite overlap, Um, and this is most studied probably in AD, uh, in Alzheimer's disease, uh, where we see CAA in nearly all of the cases, so we're talking 85 to 95%, but in most of these cases it's usually mild, Um, it's probably severe CAA in about 25 of the cases um, that, that have been looked at, so pathologically yes, definite overlap. What is interesting is that we know that CAA can also be associated with cognitive impairment. Um, but kind of traditionally, we always think of this more as a sort of vascular cognitive impairment rather than the sort of amnestic presentation that we often typically associate with AD. Mm-hmm. Cognition, when we're, we're talking about AD and, and also in CAA, it is quite complicated because, as I have mentioned, these ageing or age-related pathologies Um, And people can have multiple pathologies. um, And and in in Alzheimer's disease, the most obvious is is tau co pathology. Um, And, you know, accumulating these pathologies, vascular, um, you know, parenchymal, amyloid, tau, are all likely to contribute to someone's clinical phenotype and and cognitive presentation. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing. that I think is interesting about this is, you know, there's there's a fundamental kind of mechanistic question here about why you sometimes get amyloid beta in blood vessels and, and you get CAA, and why you sometimes get amyloid beta within the brain tissue itself in plaques, and you get um, Alzheimer's disease. And that's obviously a gross simplification, but but sort of the the concept is there. Um, and it's interesting because we know that um, there are different isoforms. So you get the slightly longer amyloid beta 42 in the, in the parenchymal plaques, and it tends to be the shorter amyloid beta 40 that you get in blood vessels. Um, but what one kind of interesting point is that um, we know that uh, in some people with Alzheimer's disease who get treated with uh, anti-amyloid beta immunotherapies get this, this condition called ARIA um, or amyloid-related imaging abnormalities. Um, and this really looks like the inflammatory form of CAA, and these people can often develop microbleeds and, and cortical superficial siderosis, which, which are imaging features of CAA. And we think this is a result of, of the immunotherapy shifting amyloid beta from the brain parenchyma in, into the vasculature. Um, and it's suge- and some of the pathological studies seem to suggest that this parenchymal clearance um, is actually particularly associated with CAA. So it might almost be. Um, an unintended kind of effect of clearing the amyloid plaques so so it, there's a suggestion there that you know there might be a, a kind of pathophysiological connection between Alzheimer's disease and CAA but lots of unknowns um, yeah, yeah. for future work.
0: Yeah no it sounds like a lot of um, interesting sort of research directions there uh, to be looking at and um, back to the the clinical aspects of this so most people will have encountered cerebral amyloid angiopathy in the context of intracerebral hemorrhage Um, so what I'd like to do is just start by talking about what are the clinical and radiological clues that someone who's presenting with an intracerebral hemorrhage that the cause may be due to CAA rather than uh, some of the other potential causes such as hypertensive small vessel disease or an underlying AVM.
1: Yeah so um there are a few things here. So, um, I think to start off with, uh, you know, as, as I keep saying, um, CAA is something we associate with increasing age. So, I, I would say that in general, not always, people with CAA um, tend to be uh, a bit older than, say, um, people who have um, certainly structural causes for intracerebral hemorrhage uh, and possibly um, also hypertensive causes, although, of course, hypertension very common and, and you see that in older people too. Mm-hmm. Another possible clue is, is sort of to do the clinical presentation. So some people who, who have um, CAA-related hemorrhage might have had um, preceding neurological symptoms. And, and what I mean by this is uh, something called transient focal neurological episodes or, or amyloid spells. Um, and what these are are sort of short, um, often recurrent, stereotyped episodes of, of neurological disturbance, um, usually sensory or motor, but, but can really involve anything. Um, and. You know, traditionally, they're said to, to be spreading. So so the symptoms kind of migrate over the relevant causal areas over minutes. They The, the symptoms can be positive. They can be negative. Um, and we think they're associated with, with small um, episodes of, of acute convexity subarachnoid hemorrhage. But we don't always pick that up on imaging. Mm-hmm. And so if, if you had somebody who had these slightly unusual spells uh, and who then went on to have a, um, a hemorrhage, you might think about CAA. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then the, other, the other clues are, of course, you know, the, the, the strongest uh, pointers are the imaging pointers. So, so uh, the hemorrhage location in CAA tends to be lobar, um, whereas obviously hypertensive bleeds tend to involve the, the deep structures in the brain, like the basal ganglia, the thalamus, the brainstem. And this really reflects the anatomical location of the blood vessels that we think are affected by the by the pathology. Mm-hmm other radiological clues um, that this might be CAA would be um, sort of the hemorrhagic imaging markers that, that we think of, that we often pick up on blood sensitive uh, MRI sequences. So those are the t the gradient echo, the susceptibility weighted imaging. Um, and specifically what we look for are um, cortical superfluous siderosis, which is sort of evidence that there's been bleeding on the surface of the brain uh, mm. and cerebral microbleeds, again, in a, in a, in a low bar distribution.
0: Okay. Um, you've already alluded uh, to a few of these things earlier in the talk, but I think it's worth digging a bit deeper if that's okay. Um, about the, some of the other ways that CAA might present, um, are you able to comment on those for me?
1: Yeah, so so we've um, I think we've spoken already about um, transient focal neurological episodes and, and amyloid spells. Um, you know, as we said, associated we think with episodes of acute convexity subarachnoid hemorrhage. Um, of course, recurrent intracerebral hemorrhages is sort of the classical way in which we think of CAA presenting.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think the other way uh, the, the other way in which CAA can present um, more unusually is with um, sort of a, a combination of rapidly progressive cognitive decline, uh, encephalopathy, so seizures, altered consciousness, uh, and focal neurological deficits due to stroke, often hemorrhage um and 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 these things together can can sometimes be suggestive of an inflammatory form of caa mm-hmm. so the nomenclature here can be quite confusing and um, there's a bit of discrepancy when we're talking about it from a pathological versus a clinical perspective but essentially inflammatory caa describes the fact that you're getting an inflammatory reaction to the vascular amyloid beta and um, so pathologically um you describe the extent of the vascular inflammation so if it's if it's just perivascular, and you might call that CAA-related inflammation. Whereas if you've got more extensive um, inflammation that involves the entire depth of the, of the vessel wall, mm-hmm. perhaps with granuloma, or granulometer, um, that's when we call Abra or amyloid beta-related uh, angiitis. Mm-hmm. Um, imaging-wise, uh, what you see is often the hemorrhagic features of CAA we've, we've discussed. So um, uh, evidence of hemorrhage, uh, microbleeds, uh, cortical superficial siderosis. Um, and then the, the thing you normally see that's unusual is you can often see these asymmetrical, sometimes rapidly evolving and, and seemingly migratory white matter changes. Um, and that's quite unusual for CAA. Um, it's a diagnosis not to miss because um, some of these cases to respond very well to immunosuppression. Um, and, and as we've sort of mentioned briefly earlier, the, this can look very much like the aria that you see in, in people with Alzheimer's disease who've received treatments with anti-amyloid immunotherapy.
0: Okay, so so those the inflammatory forms of uh, amyloid angiopathy. Then, so so I guess uh, the uh, the CAA related inflammation that could say mimic an encephalitis clinically, and the um, the amyloid beta related angitis, that could mimic a vasculitis. Is that is that sort of what you see clinically?
1: Yeah, I think I think it's it's uh, this is quite these are these are rare conditions, and I and I have yeah. to say I. I think that the, the kind of direct mapping of the degree of pathology uh, or degree of pathological change in the clinical presentation is not necessarily sort of um directly correlated. Um, yeah. But you can kind of imagine, you know, we, we know that even clinically inflammatory CAA is a spectrum, and, and now that you know we are doing MRIs more frequently, um we, we can often pick up incidental inflammatory CAA in people who have mild or, or maybe even no symptoms. So they might just have yeah. headache, for example. Um, so so it's, it's an area where we're, we're learning more and more. Um, yeah. But I, yeah, I, I, yeah I, I think sometimes the, the pathological and the clinical correlation is, is not quite as, as neat as perhaps we'd like. Yeah, yeah. It?
0: yeah, yeah, that's, that's really good. And um, so, I guess first of all, with any illness, it's about suspecting it clinically, and then uh, the, the second part is obviously confirming that. And how do we diagnose CAA currently? What What are the diagnostic criteria that you would you would use?
1: So, I think the the most well known criteria and the ones that've been around for the, for the longest are the are the Boston criteria. So, so those have existed in one form or another for at least the last twenty five years. Um, the form we currently use uh, are the modified Boston criteria. Um, essentially, if you, if you want to have a definite uh, diagnosis, you need a full post-mortem, which, you know, we don't always get. So, uh, you know, we usually use the sort of probable and sometimes the possible um, groups within that criteria. So probable, uh, you need to be over the age of 55, uh, and you need to have two or more hemorrhages, and um, which uh, either can be kind of lobar or cortical uh, macro or micro hemorrhages, um, and, and these hemorrhages have to be lobar or cortical or cortico-subcortical. So you can't have these in in uh, in deep uh, in deep brain regions. Um, and the other thing you can have as part of this criteria are um, focal or disseminated cortical superficial siderosis. So that counts as a kind of bleeding event. Mm-hmm. Um, these criteria say you, you can't have another obvious cause for your, for your hemorrhage, um, which sort of makes sense. And um, the possible criteria are essentially the age criteria plus a single bleeding event in the absence of another cause. Um, so technically you could apply the Boston criteria using CT if you had somebody who had you know, two episodes of, of low bar um, hemorrhage, but really we think of them as MRI criteria um, mm-hmm. because of the siderosis and the microbleeds, which you can only pick up on MRI. And obviously this is a limitation either due to kind of local resources um, and also other practical limitations, you know, people who are too agitated, too unwell, um, you know, and, and the fact that, you know, in most places in acute stroke, CT is, is the main first line modality. So, so many people might not get an MRI. Um, more recently, there have been new criteria called the Edinburgh criteria, which are which are CT based. And the idea was that they would, these would kind of address some of these some of these issues and limitations with access to MR. Um, and essentially, this the Edinburgh criteria use features of, of the brain hemorrhage, so um, uh, things called finger like projections um, and, and the presence of arachnoid hemorrhage to try and define the probability of, of CAA. And um, they're relatively new criteria, and the field is still kind of working on you know fully validating them in, in kind of other cohorts. Um, and and I guess their biggest limitation is that they require knowledge of the, the ApoE genotype to, to be fully applied, and so, and that's not something. Um, that's routinely available in terms of a test so it limits how how the criteria can be applied but there's a lot of work at the moment on seeing whether just the imaging components of that can can be used.
0: Okay Uh, so obviously radiology is is a key kind of investigation in in the workup of patients with suspected cerebral amyloid angiopathy and what are the other investigations that you might consider you know going beyond say CT or MRI and, and when might you request them?
1: yeah so so as with many other branches of neurology there's there's an interest uh, in biomarkers for caa and i'd say that two of the most um kind of promising biomarkers are probably um csf biomarkers and amyloid pets so these are these are outside of the the scope of kind of imaging biomarkers um, for, in caa which, which is another and um, another topic which you could go on for uh, go on about for in a podcast in itself i think Oof. um so when it comes to csf and amyloid pets uh, in both these cases, we're borrowing technology that has been developed for Alzheimer's disease. Um, and, and I think the thing, the thing that's a challenge is that, you know, the modified Boston criteria are, um, are quite good in terms of sensitivity and specificity. So um, you know, in the original paper, it talks about a sensitivity of 94.7% and a specificity of 81.4%. So, so we, do, you know, we are able to diagnose CAA on the whole reasonably well. Um, so then there's a question about what we're using these biomarkers for. So if we take amyloid PET in the first instance, we know that in the studies so far, the sensitivity is only about 79% and specificity, again, about 78% for diagnosis of CAA. But there might be a role for amyloid uh, amyloid beta pets in, uh, for example, young onset cases where you're perhaps not expecting to see amyloid beta at all. Um, so that, so there might be use for it there. In CSF, I think the amyloid uh, amyloid beta markers are most useful. There, there are other markers which have been investigated. Um, and I think they're most useful because they allow you uh, to differentiate uh, CAA cases from Alzheimer's disease. So in Alzheimer's disease, we see reductions in amyloid B to 42, uh, but in CAA, we see reductions of both amyloid B to 40 and 42, and this seems to be um, quite well replicated by various centers. Um, the other way which you can use CSF is to look for the absence of changes uh, in other neurodegenerative markers. Um, so important negatives as it were. Uh, So as an example, you perhaps wouldn't expect to see elevations of tau in CAA as you would uh, would perhaps see in Alzheimer's disease. And again, you're probably not going to do a a lumbar puncture to diagnose somebody with CAA, but it might be useful um, in people where, you know, you want to confirm that they've got amyloid beta pathology, for example, if they're they're young. Um, I think it's worth also mentioning that there are other markers that might be of interest. Um, So our our research group looked at um, CSF ferritin and iron in CAA, um, which seem to be, up in CAA, but not in outside disease or control uh, and control people. Um, and essentially, I think I think overall the hope is for these CSF and and uh, PET biomarkers is, is that they're going to tell us something different about CAA. So, for example, something about prognosis or severity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, there's always scope that these PET and CSF biomarkers are going to be really important for clinical trials. You know, either for patient selection or um, as as markers of efficacy um, further down the line.
0: Yeah. Excellent. And so, I mean, one of your mantras for this talk has definitely been that this is a disease of the elderly and um, and it, 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 the pathogenesis is, uh, it seems, um, intricately sort of connected with ageing. Um, but you mentioned there that CAA can affect younger patients. Are you able to tell us a little bit more about that and uh, what are the other considerations you'd have in that setting?
1: Yeah, so um, So. yes, um, I've, I've, gone on, I've gone on and on about the disease of ageing, but CAA can of course affect younger people. Um, and I always think about this in kind of two uh, big broad categories. Um, so the first is genetic. Um, so just as you get early onset forms of Alzheimer's disease, you can get early onset forms of CAA. Uh, the best described is uh, the catchly named hereditary cerebral hemorrhoid amyloidosis Dutch type um, or HCHWAD. It was equally catchy, I think. Yeah, um, and, that, and that's caused by mutations of the APP gene uh, and presents the current intracerebral hemorrhage. Um, and there are other um, APP mutations, so that's the amyloid precursor protein mutations, and um, that are associated with um, CAA and with brain hemorrhage. And, and there are sort of Flemish and Italian, uh, there's an Iowa and a, and a Piedmont mutation. Um, and you also see um, intracerebral hemorrhage in some cases uh, of people who've got APP duplications, and also certain presenol in one mutation. So, so those are mutations that we more associate with Alzheimer's disease. And, um, but there are cases of hemorrhage so that there, there is some overlap. Mm-hmm. I think it's also um, important to mention that there are also forms of uh, inherited CAA that don't involve amyloid beta. So, and um, remember at the beginning, I said that um, really CAA is any, any amyloid protein in the vasculature. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the ones where you might see people presenting with brain hemorrhage, are the Cystatin C amyloidosis or the Icelandic type of uh, CAA. Um, so that's where you're getting Cystatin C within the, within the blood vessels rather than amyloid beta. And that can also present with early onset recurrent brain hemorrhage. Uh, and the other one that, um, that might look a bit like uh, sort of regular CAA is the leptomeningeal variant of transthyretin uh, amyloidosis, um, which can really present with full house of um, what we think of as normal or traditional CAA features, so recurrent ICH, um, episodes that are in keeping with amyloid spells, cortical superficial siderosis, cerebral microbleeds. Um, many of the other forms of uh, inherited CAA um, that don't involve amyloid beta can have CAA as a pathological feature, but don't mm-hmm. necessarily seem to present with brain haemorrhage. So, so I think yeah. it's the Icelandic type and the tranthrolytherin leptomeningeal variant that, that I would think of.
0: And so what, the, what sort of age are we talking about with genetic amyloid? Are, are we are, are we sort of very early adulthood, or is this presenting in childhood?
1: Um, so, so not not childhood. So, um, it depends on the type. So, so the Dutch type, um, you get presentation in in forties and fifties. The Icelandic type presents can present really early, so twenties, thirties. Mm-hmm. Um, I think with the with the leptomeningeal variant, there's a, there's a bit more variation in that. Yeah. Um So, it, it can be very young, but. Um, these are very rare forms yeah. um, of, of, of CAA so and, and usually there is a, a, a strong family history to, to guide you. Um, okay. okay. On this. Um, yeah. So the second group, uh, which is uh, potentially uh, sort of a more recently described uh, group of, of patients. Uh, there have been recent descriptions of, of young onset CAA in people who've had neurosurgical procedures often in childhood. Um, so they're either neurosurgical procedures or, or procedures involving cadaveric human material. Um, and we think that this has resulted in iatrogenic CAA. So that is CAA that's caused by medical procedures. Um, this might sound sort of quite radical, but there's quite a big um, and significant scientific evidence base behind it. So, so we've known for years and years that you can get these diseases caused by abnormal forms of the prion protein, uh, in particular, with felt disease or CJD. Uh, and we know that CJD can be, in some cases, transmitted by certain procedures. Um, and the idea is that, you know, when you, the, the abnormal form of the prion protein is being transmitted to the person having the procedure, uh, and then many years down the line, Um, after the abnormal prime proteins had the opportunity to seed and then replicate within the new host, you get disease in in, in this person who had this procedure many years ago. Uh, And we know from experimental work that a number of uh, other proteins that aggregate and are associated with neurodegeneration uh, can have properties that are similar to the prime protein. And that includes amyloid beta, which can be transmitted in animals. And, And again, that's something that's been known about for many years. Um, but we thought that, you know, this was just uh, an experimental phenomenon. Um, but in the last five or six years, we've had descriptions, um, originally pathological and later clinical, as I say, of young people presenting with brain hemorrhage three or four decades after having a medical procedure. Uh, and what we believe has happened is that the amyloid beta protein was transferred to them during the procedure uh, in a way that's similar to what we recognize for the prime protein. Um, it's a, a very newly described form of CAA. We've got a lot to learn about how best to diagnose it, um, and the full range of procedures that might uh, be implicated in, it, in its causality. Um, it's also, you know, I mentioned it's something that, that happens in younger people, but we're probably picking up these cases because they are so unusual. And it might be that older people are also affected, but mm-hmm. we don't pick them up because they fall within the normal range. For what we what we expect for sporadic or the usual type of age related CAA.
0: Yeah. Thanks for going through all of that with us um, that that's obviously um, quite a lot of information there and what I wanted to do just to, to finish the episode is go through some of the common management dilemmas that clinicians might encounter uh, you know in relation to cerebral amyloid angiopathy. Now I think uh, I don't want to put you on the spot too much here so I think this is more an, an acknowledgement of some of the, the the issues that can arise, rather than getting you to commit too much uh, today, but I'd be interested to know your thought process on some of these issues. So, let, let's take a patient who perhaps has presented with an intracerebral hemorrhage um, who um, was previously on either antithrombotic or anticoagulation. We can deal with each of those, um, and after you know they've had an ICH and we think it's due to cerebral amyloid angiopathy. What would you uh, be thinking about with regards to restarting either the antithrombotics or anticoagulation after a bleed? Um, yeah, how would you approach that?
1: So, so I think you know, um, as you say, these are these are really difficult uh, questions to answer. Um, I think I think the most important thing to really have clear in your mind is what the indication is for an antithrombotic or anticoagulant um, in 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 these people, and the reason for that is you know. CAA we know is associated with, with low bar intracerebral uh, haemorrhage. And that is associated in itself with a greater risk of recurrence than non-low bar haemorrhage. So, so so people with CAA-related haemorrhage are, I think, intrinsically a, a slightly different group. Mm-hmm. Um, when, it, when it comes to sort of antiplatelets, um, obviously we've had the results of the restart trial um, within the last few years, um, which seems to suggest that the benefits of restarting antiplatelet therapy for secondary prevention, um, of occlusive vascular disease probably outweighs the risk of, of recurrent intracerebral hemorrhage, even in those with low bar ICH. And um, that was one of the sort of pre-planned uh, analyses that they that they looked at. And mm-hmm. um, I think in terms of other uh, indications, so so the one that we probably see the most in kind of stroke is is atrial fibrillation. Um, so something that requires anticoagulation lifelong. Um, mm-hmm. So we're waiting for trials um, to give us some more data on this. So there are a few that are are in the pipeline. There's SOSTART, um, Apache AF, Enrich AF. Um, These trials often use uh, newer anticoagulants uh, rather than warfarin. There's a sort of general sense that these are probably kind of safer, inverted commas um, from from a bleeding perspective. And I think those, those trial results are gonna be really important for, for giving us good evidence upon which to base our practice. Mm-hmm. And the other things that you might want to think about are um, other approaches that might reduce the need for lifelong anticoagulation. So things like left atrial appendage closure um, techniques can, can in, you know, avoid the, the need for long-term anticoagulation. And that might be something um, that can be considered if it's something that's provided by a local service. But essentially it's it's a very it's a careful weighing up of, of the indications, uh, the relative risks of ischemia and, and bleeding and, of course, being able to communicate to the, to the person um, that's being treated that, that this is what the, the balance uh, the balance of probabilities is about. And, of course, we're always waiting for more data.
0: Okay, excellent. Um, secondly, so something that's not uncommon, again, will be that an MRI is perhaps done on someone uh, for a completely different reason other than intracerebral hemorrhage. And uh, if if the the right sequences are done, it may be that microbleeds are are found on that scan. Do do we ever feel for what is still acceptable within a kind of like normal reference range uh, for microbleeds on a scan? And what should we be telling the patients when we find the microbleeds and um, maybe do that first? And then I guess, secondly, on from that, what are the risks uh, if that patient was to present, say with a stroke, uh, for having thrombolysis, do we know that they're going to have more hemorrhagic transformation, things like that? Um, there's quite, quite a lot to to get through there. What, what's your approach?
1: There's a lot of questions in that. So, so um, I think so. We know from sort of population-based studies um, that people um, people do have uh, people do have microbleeds. So, for example, the Rotterdam study, um, it's a population-based study in over 60s. We know about 20, percent just under 20, have have microbleeds. And as you kind of allude to, as with most things in medicine, it's really dependent on the clinical context. Um, so, you know, I, I'm, I I don't think I would be able to commit to a reference range. But I think, you know, if somebody only had one or two microbleeds and they were over the age of 65, um, you'd want to look at whether they were low bar or non-low bar. You'd want to look for other features of CAA. And. Um, and I think you know you would want to put those things together. And obviously, you've been in a, in a very different, you know, the context where you've done MRI on somebody with a who's presenting with sort of migraine who's got you know one lobar microhemorrhage versus you know somebody who um, who might also have migraine but has you know seven or eight lobar microhemorrhages and a bit of cortical superficial siderosis are, are obviously going to be managed and, and thought about in two very different ways. And mm. um, in terms of uh, in terms of treatments and how you approach things like anticoagulation, and antithrombotics. Um, again, with uh, with the previous question, you know, it's about balance of risk. Um, There's recently been a, a large kind of pooled analysis um, using data at the individual level, um, individual patient level, um, which includes over twenty thousand people who had a recent ischemic stroke or TIA, uh, and then had um, sort of uh, and had cerebral microbleeds on on their initial imaging, um, and ultimately what, what, what that showed was that. Um, although they, people with more microbeads do have a, a, a greater a relative hazard for having a, a subsequent intracranial hemorrhage, um, the absolute risk of ischemic stroke is higher than that for intracranial hemorrhage. Um, and that's regardless of, of microbleed presence, anatomical distribution or burden. So it's, it's kind of, you know, being able to accurately weigh up those relative ischemic and, and hemorrhagic risks um, can be very challenging. And, uh, and again, there's been recent work using um, some new scores that the mycon ICH and the mycon uh, IS scores that try and kind of quantify uh, relative intracerebral hemorrhage and, and ischemic stroke risk using features, including cerebral microbleeds. Um, and again, as with all these things, you know, the way in which we anticoagulate people in particular is changing, um, you know, novel anticoagulants versus warfarin, the relative safety profiles. Um, mm. So these are all things, all things to consider.
0: Okay, and then finally, um, so say, you, say you've got a patient who is the right age for cerebral amyloid angiopathy and they presented with a, a scan that shows a low bar hemorrhage, but you've done an MRI um, and you're not seeing lots of other uh, microbleeds uh, or you know or areas of superficial siderosis on the um on the SWE, say um so does that mean they haven't got amyloid angiopathy i mean the, the diagnostic criteria put a lot of weight on the the mri findings don't they what what would you be saying to that patient
1: yeah so you know as, as with all these things you know lobar low bar low hemorrhage has a differential um and the biggest differential i think especially in someone of a certain age is hypertension so so hypertensive bleeds um you know can potentially be low bar. Um, I think you know if if um, if you've got someone with an isolated low bar hemorrhage, as you say, you'd want to do the MRI to look for additional features that would that would help you make you know reach those uh, modified Boston criteria. And if they're lacking, um, you might want to think about investigating them further. So. Particularly if they're young uh, or younger, and, mm-hmm. and they don't have any other evidence of small vessel disease, so you no know, white matter changes, you might want to think about you know non invasive or even formal angiography uh, just to rule out structural causes. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think uh, you know an isolated lower hemorrhage is is is, is difficult. You, if you can't call it CAA, it's either a case of kind of making sure it's not anything else, and then and then perhaps watching and waiting, and then you know yeah. when somebody has that second hemorrhage or they develop something further, then then you've got your answer
0: yeah excellent well Gargi that was that was fantastic and that's a really uh, thorough run through of the topic there and um, I would definitely like to get you back on the podcast maybe a bit later on when uh, we know a few more have a few more answers to some of these dilemmas um, that you've mentioned there um, again I'll put you on the spot here very quickly but what would you say are the key messages you'd want as a neurology trainee perhaps encountering cerebral amyloid angiopathy what do you think are the key messages that they would uh, need to know about the condition
1: so uh, I would say um, make sure you make the diagnosis. So so remember those modified Boston criteria. Um, have a look at the patient's drug charts. Make sure that if they are uh, on things like anti-platelets and anticoagulants, um, you know you've, you know what the indication is is for them, and that you've got a you've, you've got a plan and you've thought about why they're on what they're on. Um, blood pressure is the other thing we we always you know go on about in hemorrhage. So so we might be slightly more aggressive. Uh, managing that uh, in somebody who's had a hemorrhage and um, so check the drug chart to make sure they're on some anti um, Yeah, and then um, I suppose the final thing would be watch this space so uh, CAA I think is one of the one of the most interesting uh, obviously I'm biased uh, but one of the more interesting um, neurological conditions because it it does sort of overlap with Alzheimer's disease. And there is this new form, um, this new iatrogenic form, which seems to be emerging. So so I think there's going to be, hopefully, some some very interesting um, pathophysiological uh, breakthroughs uh, in upcoming years on, on how and why CAA develops. So um, that would be my final
0: point, yeah. I think. Brilliant. Well, thank, thanks very much. Uh, and thanks for talking to us today.
1: Amazing. Thanks so much for, for inviting me to be part of this. Cheers. Thank
0: you. No, no worries. Thanks, see you. Thank you for listening. For more information about this episode, please visit our website at neuropodcases.co.uk.